Gospels as we do that, and we're going to start in Luke chapter 10. So I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to Luke chapter 10. We're in the New Testament, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke chapter 10. If you brought your Bible along, if not, there's a, one in the chair for you to grab or look it up on your electronic equipment. Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to start reading with verse 1, Luke 10, starting with verse 1. As I'm reading this, think about how Jesus is looking at the world. Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And he told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Do not take a purse or a bag or sandals, and do not greet anyone on the road. When you enter a house, first say, Peace to this house. If someone who promises peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. Stay there, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what is offered to you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But when you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town we wipe from our feet as a warning to you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it would be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable for them at the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Whoever listens to you, listens to me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. But whoever rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, and they said, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus replied, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. I want you to start this morning by thinking about some movies that you have seen that you consider to be like really well-made movies, like beautiful movies, like all the scenes make sense, the thing flows, like you wouldn't do anything to fix it, maybe even the perfect movie. And I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to tell them what you would consider to be some of the most beautiful movies that you've ever seen, okay? Go ahead and talk about that for a second. And if someone's by themselves, pull them into your conversation to include them here this morning. The most beautiful movies you've ever seen. Okay, you've got some ideas in mind. Most of the movies I go to, I usually leave thinking, ah, oh, you know, I've got some editing I'd like to do to that. But there, there's a few movies that I think are like the ideal model movies. I've got some pictures of them. I'm going to see if you can identify it. Anyone? Yeah, yeah. Even though it looks dated, that um, E.T. is still like the perfect movie. You wouldn't fix a thing. 
Okay, you, you saw the second one. Is that a perfect movie or what? Like that all the scenes just make perfect sense in there. Okay, how about the next one? Do you know what movie this is? Yeah, Gravity. If you haven't seen this, I recommend it. It, it was a beautifully shot movie, and it actually it's famous because its opening sequence is 17 minutes long, and it was filmed nonstop, which is not the way they usually film movies. They usually film them in little tiny pieces and put it all together. But the first 17 movies of, minutes of this movie are absolutely stunning and, and super intense, if you're into that. Okay, the next one. Anybody? The Princess Bride. If there is like a perfect movie that was ever made, I think The Princess Bride is the closest to the perfect movie ever. If you've not seen it, I met somebody after the first service and they're like, what is that movie? I've never seen it. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're lost. So is there anybody here who hasn't seen The Princess Bride yet? Go today and watch The Princess Bride. It's like the perfect movie. Okay, one more. Men, any men, tell me what this movie is. Not Gladiator, no. <laughs> Good guess. That was another great movie, by the way. Women, what movie is this? Yeah, Pride and Prejudice. Okay, men, next date night. Okay, you want to earn some extra points. Get whatever version you can get your hands on. All, I've, all the versions, I think, are beautifully shot, and it's, it is a beautiful story once you figure out who all the characters are. Um, Pride and Prejudice. Okay, one more. This one? Shawshank Redemption. If there is a movie that I think is the uh, perfect storytelling, I think the Shawshank Redemption is the perfect story told. And I'm really fascinated about how stories unfold and how people tell stories. If you don't know this story, this is one of the closing, uh, near the end of the movie scenes. And it symbolizes this, uh, Andy Dufresne is the main character. It symbolizes this washing that he has, this experience of being washed clean of all of his sins. It's really a powerful story and really well told, and uh, I highly recommend Shawshank Redemption. You know, most movies are made by editing lots of little pieces and putting it together to make a movie. And that's, if you ever watch movies all the way to the end and you get all the list of credits of all the people who were involved, there's usually a whole bunch of editors, and they go through... Um, all this extra footage that gets shot, and then they try to pick out the best pieces to try to fit it all together to make the story the most compelling story possible. Now, we understand that a little bit of that happens in our Bibles when we get our Bible stories. that This isn't the whole story, but they're trying to tell a particular tale. So as you're reading Luke chapter 10, did you have any impressions about the story? Did you like it, or would you like have a sense that something in Luke chapter 10 should be edited? And I'm going to admit to you that when I read Luke chapter 10, I think there needs to be some editing to make this story even more compelling. Because the whole thing starts out with, well, I'm going to give you the kind of the, the, the basic flow as I see it. Five different things happen here. First of all, there's this picture of this urgent harvest that's coming. And then there's this strategy that gets introduced that's super intense. And then after that strategy is introduced, we see that it's for bringing the kingdom or announcing that the kingdom of God is coming near and then the darkness in this passage like hangs on. Darkness is really super su- uh, stubborn, but in the end, we see that the enemy is actually defeated. So if I was going to do some editing to Luke chapter 10, and I found after studying it this week that I'm not the only guy who thinks this. There's lots of people who look at Luke 10 and go, ah, that story could use a little tweaking. The first thing I'd like to recognize is this, that the way he starts the story is with this vast harvest that is ripe and ready to go. And then the next thing out of Jesus' mouth is this, but there's only a few laborers. Now, if I was going to coach Jesus on maybe how to tell the story, I would say something like, you know what? This sounds like scarcity. 
And I don't really think of God as being like a God of scarcity, like a God who can't supply all that we need. So maybe if he wordsmithed that just a little bit and told the story like, you know, well, there's workers and there's plenty of them, but they're in training. Or maybe if he said something like, you know, well, there's some workers, they're on the way, they're coming or something like that. But to to just come right out and say, you know what, there's a big harvest and there's not enough workers, that seems like kind of a downer way to start the story. So I'd coach him maybe to edit that a little bit. But then when you get into the story, you see why the workers are few because Jesus lays out this really super intense strategy, and here's the strategy. You, sheep, are going to go out with the wolves. Anybody want to sign up? I mean, if you see Jesus like volunteer coordinator, like with a clipboard out in the gathering space, we're all having coffee, talking, and you know, chit-chatting about everything, and Jesus comes along. Hey, can I have your attention? I need 72 volunteers. The uh, only thing that's uh, likely to happen as you go volunteer is like, you're going to get eaten. Come on, sign up. So if I was going to coach him, I'm like, you know what? That strategy isn't how we recruit. We usually recruit by saying something like, you know what? This job is really important, and it's going to be really fun for you. You're going to find yourself fulfilled, and you're going to touch somebody's life. It's going to be really great. So come sign up for this thing. Jesus could use a little coaching maybe or editing on how he tells the story to make it a little less kind of intense. And then it actually gets more intense in the the middle of the story, right in the very guts of this, because he turns to the woes. And he has this little thing in there about woe to you. And the cities that he's talking about are cities that are going to experience like really harsh judgment because they didn't respond to the word of God. Now, if I was going to coach Jesus on kind of editing this from my perspective, I would say maybe take out the woes, maybe a little less judgment, especially in this day and age, because we really aren't people who like to like talk too much about judgment. That's kind of harsh. I mean, even I think the word hell is even in the passage. Like, can we maybe tone that down just a little bit? If we're telling the story, maybe we could just sugarcoat the woes a little bit more and maybe that would make it a little bit more attractive. In fact, if I was going to coach from my perspective how Jesus could perhaps edit this story, I would say maybe you should just go to the two things that really caught my attention. One was the kingdom of God. Let's talk about that. And it's near. It's right here. It's close by. And then let's talk about, you know, the, the part about Satan falling and being defeated. That would be really good. Maybe let's just focus on those two parts. Would that be a better story? From my perspective, this is how I would edit the story. Of course, you're all sitting there going, well, now what has Pastor Kent flipped? He's trying to edit the scriptures and tell Jesus what to say. Well, that's kind of my point. You know, if I'm Steven Steven Spielberg and I make a movie, it's my movie, right? So I get to edit. I get to put the cuts and whatever. If I'm really excited, maybe I make one theatrical version, then I make my own, my director's cut version. I get to do that because it's my movie. These words that we have in scripture, you know what? They're not our words. They're not my words. They're not your words. It's not our story, right? It's God's story. So we actually don't get to edit. There's not like some kind of committee or some kind of team that can go, hey, let's go back through the pages of Scripture and let's cut out the parts we don't like. We don't get to do that. In fact, what we're invited to do is we're invited to change our perspective so that when we look at these stories, we go, it's not really about my perspective at all when I read these stories. It's about... Jesus' perspective. So what if we would read the same story, the story of the 72, and go, okay, how is Jesus looking at this? And maybe that will help us understand why he's telling the story the way it is. In fact, this whole journey we're going to take for the next couple months is going to hopefully train us to look at Scripture and look at the world and look at our lives from Jesus' eyes. What is Jesus seeing when he sees these things? And can we learn to see it as Jesus sees it? 
That's what our hope is for this little series. So I want to start over with the story, and I want to try to go back and see how is it that Jesus is looking at this particular story? What is he seeing when he looks at it? And to get that, we have to understand, first of all, I picked Luke 10, which is right smack in the middle of a story that's already being told, right? Luke has been going on for nine chapters already about what's happening. And so if we really want to get the full flavor, we should go back and we should see the whole thing. I'm not going to make you go back to the beginning. Just go back a few verses to the end of chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, Jesus has just made a turn. And he's kind of famous for this particular turn in Scripture in the way Luke tells the story. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus turns to look at Jerusalem. In fact, Luke 9 verse 51 says... Jesus steadfastly turned his gaze to Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has been looking at many different things in the world, but from this point forward, Luke is giving us a clue about the story. The story right now is going to be about where Jesus is looking, and he's looking at Jerusalem, and you know what happens there? The cross, the crucifixion. Jesus makes a turn in Luke chapter 9, and from this point on, he is like super intense because he is set on this mission, and his mission is to get to the cross. And there is absolutely nothing that's going to derail Jesus from getting to the cross. So everything he says from chapter 9 on, we want to look at from that perspective. Jesus is looking at the cross, and he's trying to understand how intense this mission is. Now, we know Jesus' mission wasn't like to go door-to-door and say, sell magazines or self-help tips or how to improve better parents, improve your marriage. This isn't what Jesus is doing. Jesus recognizes that there's a mission, and it's a life-and-death mission, and the mission is accomplished once he gets to that cross. And this shapes the way the story unfolds from this point forward. It has something to do with Jesus going to the cross. So Jesus looks out at the world as he's headed toward the cross, and he sees something. The, the harvest is ripe. It's ready. Now, do we have any farmers here? Or maybe just gardeners even? You know what you have to do when the harvest is ready? Do you go mend a fence? You go to town for coffee. You like hang out, maybe take a day of vacation. What do you do when the harvest time comes? You get in gear. You have to get in gear. You go harvest. And there's a window. And if you don't get the harvest accomplished in that window, then what happens is you start to lose it. It starts to fall off the vine. It starts to rot. It's, you know, I got a bunch of rotten tomatoes underneath my tomato vines because I stopped picking them. I didn't harvest at the proper time. The harvest is lost if you don't go out. This is the perspective that Jesus has. As he's looking toward Jerusalem, he's saying, you know what? I see this world around me, and it is time now for the harvest. We need to go. And so Jesus enlists volunteers. Now, he doesn't go out to the disciples with a clipboard and say, hey, anybody want to sign up for this? He actually, uh, the word in our text, I think, was appoint. He actually appoints 72 to go out and do this mission. He's not even asking for volunteers. He's saying, now's the time. Go do it. And actually, the word that is the most compelling in this sense of urgency is the word cast out. The, the 72 are actually like cast out into the harvest field. They're like ejected out there into the harvest field to go be like sheep among the wolves. This is why there's such urgency, because when the harvest is ready, you go. And then it's intense because we recognize that Jesus is telling us something true about the reality here, isn't he? Um, when we get out into the harvest field... It can be tough, can it? It can be hard. Anybody here ever go out into the world and feel like you were a lamb among wolves? 
Ever go out into the world and feel like you're going to, I'm going to shine a little bit of light into a dark situation and you feel like, oh my gosh, the darkness is threatening to consume me? Yeah, what Jesus is describing here is he's describing reality. He's looking at the world and he's seeing it for the way he really is. No sugarcoating. He's telling it like it is. So the harvest is urgent because it's time. And when you go out there, it's going to be a challenge. You're going to be like sheep among wolves. But what you're going to do when you get out there, because of the urgency of this task, is you're going to bring peace. Uh, This word comes up frequently in the middle section of the story. He says, you're going to go and you're going to walk into these towns and the first thing you're going to do is you're going to look for people of peace. And when you see a person of peace, you're going to go, peace be with you. And if they are a person of peace, they'll give you peace back. Now, remember a few weeks ago we talked about peace in kind of its fuller, richer sense of being like shalom, wholeness. Like this peace that they're bringing is not just kind of like, you know, a temporary truce, we're going to get along with each other. They're bringing a peace that says we are bringing a vision of a world that flourish, that is flourishing, a world that is put together fully, a world that is whole and complete. And so you're going to go out and you're going to bring peace. But the interesting thing about this intense strategy, these sheep going out among the wolves, is that they're going to bring peace to those people who are looking for peace, but they're also going to bring the same message to those who aren't looking for it. So some are going to receive this message, and some are not going to receive this message. It doesn't matter. You're supposed to bring the same thing, peace. Now when I see this, I think, oh my gosh, Jesus is actually brilliant in Luke in telling this story, because isn't that the way it is in the world? Sometimes we bring peace to people who are ready to receive it. They just know they need peace. And sometimes we bring peace to people they don't want a thing to do with it. They're not ready. In the same, we bring the same message to both. Peace, and actually the message that's repeated to both is also, well, the kingdom's near. Even if you're not quite ready, it doesn't change the reality that the kingdom of God is still near to you. The kingdom of God has come close. Well, into the middle of this bringing peace, I think Jesus has another great perspective on the reality of the world, and that is that the the darkness is stubborn, isn't it? Now, if I was going to do some editing of the story of the world, I think I would edit out some of the darkness, don't you think? Wouldn't that be better? I mean, I've had experiences in my life, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I could do with a whole lot less darkness right now. Maybe I could just edit that scene, cut it out completely. But the reality is the world is, it's messy. It's filled with darkness. I, um, some of the blogs that I read have to do with uh, world missions, and um, they focus on where Christians are being persecuted um, nowadays, which there's persecution of Christians happening in the world right now, today. And one of the blogs that I read described the situation, and it kind of described it like this. In Indonesia, Christian schoolgirls are dragged from a bus and beheaded In Egypt, ancient Coptic communities have simply been obliterated. In Sudan, Christian villages have been bombed and strafed routinely. In Nigeria, entire congregations are rounded up, gunned down, and left to rot. In India, churches are burned to the ground while the faithful are hacked to death. In Palestine, Iraq, and Syria, ethnic cleansing has reduced Christian communities to a pitiful few elderly survivors. This is happening in our world today, and you know what it makes me think of? The wolves are circling. And even if we don't face this kind of intense persecution and martyrdom in our own setting, 
How many of us would look at our own lives and go, you know what, in the last day or the last week or the last month, the wolves have been after me. I have faced darkness in my life. And man, if I had the ability to edit that story, I would like to just cut that stuff right out. But Jesus is honest about the conditions of the world in which we live. And when he tells his story, he doesn't sugarcoat it. And the reality is this. We live in a world where the darkness is stubborn. But this does not change the fact that the kingdom of God is still near. This is the amazing part about the way he weaves these two things together. There's such tension. I want to resolve it, but he lets it hang. So the 72 come, and they appointed to this task to go out like sheep among wolves to the harvest that's ready and urgent. They go and they face this stubborn darkness, and then they have an amazing thing to report when they come back. They say, it worked. The light pierced the darkness. We saw the enemy defeated. We saw the enemy run. This is the way Luke records it. The 72 returned with joy. And they said, look, Lord, even the demons submitted to us in your name. There's great joy because they recognize that the kingdom of God is breaking down. Now, Luke uses really simple language throughout his book to describe Satan, and it usually has to do with the kinds of things that Satan does. Satan is described as the tempter, the accuser, the prince of this world, the prince of darkness, the murderer from the beginning. So Luke makes it clear that there's this character in the story, and he's often hiding in the background, but sometimes he comes to the forefront and we see him exposed for who he really is. And while these disciples are off carrying out their mission, Jesus has a vision. And the vision is Satan fell like lightning from heaven. And if I'm looking at the way the story is laying out in this script, this is the money shot. Jesus saw Satan falling from lightning. And this is a present tense. It's not future. It's not like someday Satan is going to fall. He saw Satan fall from heaven. And it was because Jesus knew from this point forward he was going to go to the cross and there was going to be nothing to stop him. And going to the cross defeats Satan. It brings down the prince of darkness. It actually makes the darkness tremble. Now often in the stories that I'm involved with, I feel like I shrink back from the darkness. I feel like the darkness might overpower me. But I've been thinking a lot more about these pictures in Scripture where the story ends completely different. And the story ends with the darkness shrinking back, the darkness trembling, the darkness being defeated. And Jesus knows that this is the case because even though the darkness is stubborn, the kingdom of God has come. And it's breaking into this world so that the harvest is ready. And the workers are going out into the harvest to harvest it. That's what Jesus sees when he looks at our world. And so I'm wondering what you see when you look at it. Because it seems to me that, after all, Luke 10, like a perfect story. 
So I want to lead us in a prayer this morning, and I'm going to ask you guys to be involved in praying along with me. And the way we're going to do this is by me saying um, a phrase, and the phrase is going to be, Lord, hear our prayers. And then I want you to respond by saying, Lord, have mercy. So when I say, Lord, hear our prayers, you're going to say, Okay, let's pray together. God, we come before you this morning and we recognize that we need you. Lord, hear our prayers. God, we see in the world people who are living under incredible oppression, even facing the loss of their lives for their faith. We pray, God, that you would strengthen those who are being persecuted. Lord, hear our prayer. We experience brokenness in our own communities, Lord, and oftentimes that has to do with our, our physical well-being. And many of us know individuals who need to have a healing touch. And God, we pray for you to restore health and strength to those who are in need. Uh, Lord, hear our prayer. The darkness can also threaten our homes and our families and our children. We know that there are marriages that need to be reconciled, that there are parents that need to be reconciled with their children, brothers and sisters who need to be reconciled with each other. God, in the brokenness of relationships, we pray for healing and uh, restoration, Lord. Hear our prayer. God, for those in our community who are poor and oppressed, for those who suffer injustice, whose worlds are not flourishing, we pray, God, that you would bring justice to those who need it. And we ask, Lord, that you would hear our prayer. God, we pray for those who are prisoners and and, and captives those who are held and, and trapped in the bonds of addiction and enslaved by those addictions. God, we pray that you would free them from that and that you would work to free all who are oppressed and imprisoned. Lord, hear our prayer. For our president, for the leaders of the nations, for all those who are in authority, God, uphold them. Lord, hear our prayer. God, for the peace of the world, for shalom for peace in our own communities, for peace in our homes, for peace in our hearts. We pray that you would restore all that is broken. Lord, hear our prayer. And God, I give you thanks that you are the good and great God who listens to us when we cry out answers our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.